When I was a fairly new driver living in Saskatchewan, uh, we had a lot of different churches throughout the province that my dad and dad's church had started, and I would visit them from time to time. And um, I remember going to one church probably three and a half hours from Saskatoon, and um, country roads, I think it was probably August or something. The fields were um, mostly grown with the wheat and uh, canola and all of that. And uh, roads are kind of remote. Have you anyone been in the rural Saskatchewan highways? Uh, you know, based on grid patterns, you know, you know, about every two miles you'd find a road here, or there, dirt roads and all that. But I was driving back to Saskatoon, and it was about 15 minutes, uh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes into uh, in part of my journey, and I realized I hadn't seen another person. Driving for like half an hour, and not another car, not a, not a tractor in the in the in the distance with the dust going up in the fields or anything, and I started to panic a little bit. I'm thought, did Jesus come back? <laughs> did he like take everyone and leave me behind? Like I started to wonder, like, what if I missed it? What if I missed the call? Did I not see the, the angels coming in the trumpet sound? Or I, start, I, I got nervous that maybe I missed the rapture or something, and, and, I, and I don't know what to do next. And then finally I saw a car going, oh, I'm safe. There's other people. But I, it was an odd feeling to think that maybe I didn't make the cut, that maybe I got left behind. And, uh, you know, about that time, all of those Left Behind series were coming out when I was... A, in the young person age, and movies were coming out, and all the late great planet Earth, and different things were happening, and uh, it was in the air, kind of like Jesus could come at any moment. Today's passage is talking about that. In Luke chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus himself is going to explain a little bit about what's going to happen with the second coming. Like, there's a whole lot of speculation. A lot of people think they know exactly when he's coming, and uh, I'll be getting into that in a minute. But let me just uh, start with a word of prayer. Today's service is just a little bit different than we're used to. We're going to end differently as well. So I'd just like to ask uh, God to guide this service. Father God, continue with your presence among us. We know, Father, that when your people gather in your name, there you are in their midst. And so we know you're here. We know you've sent your spirit to lead us into your presence, to listen to the truth that you have from your word. Uh, some of these passages are difficult, maybe even touchy. So I pray, God, that people wouldn't hear my words, but they'd listen to your spirit, that he would translate what I say to hearts and minds to hear your truth today. May we come away from here, Father, challenged and um, informed and committed to our calling as followers of Christ. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Yeah, that's the wrong PowerPoint. So um, I don't know if we can resurrect um, our PowerPoint that I sent or not, because uh, that's all we got. I had some really great PowerPoints for you today. You know what? We'll just shut that down. Grab your Bibles. 
whether it's on your phone app or in the pew in front of you, turn to Luke 17. If you're online, grab your Bible, follow along. You're not exempt today. And uh, maybe it's just us and God's Word. No fancy, no fancy slides. Verse 20, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. They, visible signs. They probably thought he was a prophet and had something to say. He had done some miracles and his reputation went before him. Let's see what this guy has to say about the kingdom of God. So the Jewish leaders were consumed by the promised Messiah coming to overthrow the Roman government to set up his kingdom on earth. The Jewish leaders and all the Jewish people, I mean, they had been in exile in Babylon, they'd come back, they reestablished their community, and all these invading forces kept coming through, Assyrians and Babylonians and Egyptians and Greeks, and now the Romans were there. They go, can we not just have our own kingdom? And that's what they were looking for. They wanted the never-ending kingdom where God's people would be protected from all their adversaries and live in peace with a thriving economy. But just like the prophet Samuel at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, they wanted a king to rule over them so they could be like all the other nations. In Samuel's case, God says to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me that I should not reign over them. So the people of Israel in Samuel's day got their first king, Saul. You know the story, big, tall, handsome guy, a lot of insecurities, um, I think mental illness, a lot of stuff he battled with, but they got a king just, as, just the same, and they all of a sudden realized that just because they have a king, not everything's going to be wonderful. In fact, they kept getting invaded by this army and that army, and this wall was city, fortified city was taken, and that one was taken, and all of a sudden they're, they're being treated like all the other nations with kings. Any bigger, stronger army would come through and, and take over and, and uh, steal all their stuff, their crops, their wine, whatever, their people, take them into slavery. And so what I see is that a thousand years later, after the first king, they're still wanting another king. They're still wanting someone to come and rule over them. They figured the Messiah was going to be the answer, establish his kingdom on earth and, and protect them and have, have a thriving economy and, and prove, you know, that their God is the best God. Here Jesus says, once again, you're looking for the wrong kind of kingdom. Verse 21 you're not going to be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. The Messiah did not need a place, or sorry, did not need a palace. He did not need courtiers or fanfare or precious gemstones and medals like the other kings did. His kingdom was not going to be set up in a walled city, protected by angels or heavenly soldiers. To their surprise, Jesus tells them the kingdom of God has been in their midst already. The fact that they just opened their eyes, they'd see the king of kings standing right there talking to them. Wherever he is, is his rule and authority. As a rule of thumb, 
If a person or a small group of people claim to know where the Messiah is, or that their prophet or leader or guru or pastor is the Messiah, run away as fast as you can. Totally disregard them. No one person will have special insight or secret knowledge or prophetic powers to identify the soon incoming king. When Christ comes back, it's not going to be at McDonald's. It's not going to be out in the wilderness. It's not going to be in some far-flung place in the world. It's going to be worldwide phenomena, and it will be without question, everybody will know that he has come back. Verse 22 says, the disciples, he looked at his disciples and says, the time is coming when you will know, uh, when you will long to see the day when the Son of Man returns, but you won't see it. Jesus knew what was coming. After his crucifixion, there'd be some kind of time of peace, but all of a sudden persecutions would start. I mean, that's what the Saul of Tarsus was all about. Get rid of the Christians. Get rid of all the followers of the way. They were going to find um, that they're going to long for the Messiah to show up. Thank God, save us. Come now. Come quickly. We're, we're, we're dealing with persecution. We're dealing with oppression. We're dealing with imprisonment. Jesus, come soon. Jesus says, there's going to be a day when you wish I'm, I'm coming back soon. In fact, in verse 23, says, people are going to tell you, look, there's the Son of Man, or here he is, but don't go out and follow them. I did a little bit of research. It's not hard to do. When you type in the predictions for the return of Christ, you get all page full. So here's a few. <clears throat> 500 AD, three Christian theologians, Hippolytus of Rome, Irenaeus, Sextus, Julius of Africanus. 500, they figured 500, nice round figure, probably going to be the return of Christ. Didn't happen. 200, uh, 300 years later, 793, a Spanish monk, Beatus of Libina, predicted the return of Christ. Didn't happen. Pope Sylvester II uh, thought another round number, July 1st, 1,000. Kind of like our Y2K, 2,000. Well, he got a jump on it at 1,000. Didn't happen. 1260, an Italian mystic, Joachim of Fiora, predicted Christ's return. Didn't happen. 1504, Sandro of Botticelli. Nope. 1533, mathematician, Michael Stiefel, thought that he had put all the numbers together, figured it out, got all the Daniel things and all the prophetic things and the New Testament things, put it together in the weeks and the days and the years. Didn't happen. Zimmerman, Mason, and Alstead all thought in 1694 return of Christ didn't happen. Emmanuel Swedenborg, a spiritual uh, leader, 1757, Christ is going to return. And when it didn't happen, he says, oh, Christ actually did come, but it was a spiritual coming, so we couldn't see it. Yeah. John Wesley, 1836 based his prediction on Revelations 12, verse 14. And when it didn't happen, it was referred to as the great disappointment. Even Wesley got it wrong. 1874, the first president of Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Russell, said he was coming back. Nope. And then he reverted to, oh, it was a spiritual return of Christ that happened. 1891, the founder of the Mormons, Joseph Smith, predicted Christ would come back. Didn't happen. 
The Worldwide Church of God, founder Herbert W. Armstrong, um, he predicted Christ returned in 1935, 1943, 1972, and 1975. And when none of those happened, you saw the decimation of the Worldwide Church of God, and people just said, <clears throat> done with this one. The author of Late Great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, 1988, predicted the return of Christ, didn't happen. Edgar Wisenot also wrote a book, The 88 Reasons Why Christ is Gonna Return in 1988. And I have a copy of his pamphlet that says uh, 1989 um, reasons <coughs> why, why he's coming back in 89. <laughs> he had to revise it because there's some difference between the Gregorian calendar and the Roman calendar. Like, whatever. Didn't come back in 89 either. And so between 1999 and 2009, Jerry Falwell, co-founder of the political lobby group Moral Majority, founder of Liberty University, believed a Jewish antichrist would be revealed sometime in that 10-year period. Didn't happen. Every year since 2000, someone has predicted the return of Christ. Didn't happen. My father has said on several occasions that he felt Christ's return would happen before his death. He's still alive, not doing well, so I suggest you get things in order. Jesus does not say that there will be a spiritual return or an invisible judgment day where the majority of people on earth will have no knowledge of it happening. Many of the predictors of Christ's return defaulted to a spiritual return because he didn't come physically. Many people have tried to piece together verses from Daniel and Old Testament together with New Testament writers to discern that's date for the Messiah's return. Me? I'm just going to go with what Jesus says. You know, you can, you can hunt and figure, and you can spend years and years trying to figure out what the Bible says about the predictions. Let's just go with the Messiah's words. The guy that's going to return, he says this, that he's, don't be chasing after everyone's prophecies. He even said he didn't know. So if you think you know, you know more than Jesus. And I just, you know, I'm going to just remain skeptical that you know more than Jesus. So what is a false prophet? Essentially, a person who leads people astray, takes them off track, following after harmful paths in the name of God or with some special information or secret knowledge others don't have or with the promise of the miraculous. But a false prophet is a deceiver, a charlatan, and worse, a scam artist who prey on the susceptible. There's a lot of sheep out there. And they need the good shepherd, not some loud mouth sheep that's trying to tell them what's going on. Maybe you've heard of the American preacher Jim Jones who established a community of followers in Jonestown, Guyana in the late 70s. He railed against the American government and the intrusion of the American United States government in 1978, a delegation led by uh, uh, Representative Leo Ryan, went to investigate this cult, and he and his team were all murdered by um, Jim Jones's people. And because they did that, they realized this is probably the end of the world now, so he ordered all of his followers in this town, nearly 1,000 people, to commit suicide. And they did. 
He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Maybe you read about even last month, a 50-year-old Paul McKenzie, founder of Good News International Church in Kenya, uh, turns out to be a cult. He rejected state authority, secular schools, and hospitals, and he told his followers to starve themselves so they could see Christ before the impending doom of the world. He thought the world was coming to an end, so rather than facing that, let's just die first so we can go to heaven. So they've already uncovered 100 bodies buried in the forest, and 400 people are still missing. Another wolf in sheep's clothing. Verse 24 says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man comes. I found out that uh, not long ago in 2020, April 29, uh, there was a lightning strike that went across four southern American states, visible, uh, a length, a measured length of 768 kilometers wide. I mean, that's massive. When Christ returns, he says it will be like a lightning strike that goes from the east to the west. It will be visible to everybody. There will be no doubt of what's happening. It's not that he will be lightning. It will be like the lightning flashing, grabbing everybody's attention. No one will be in question what's going on. This will be visible and obvious to everyone what's going on. But he says in verse 25, first, the Son of Man has to suffer terribly and be rejected by this generation. He knew what was coming. He knew that the very people that he was speaking to we're going to have him arrested. We're going to have him beaten and tortured, and the Roman government would crucify him. He knew that this was coming. This was, what, this was the plan. He would become a sacrifice. He was going to have to suffer. And he knew that his disciples also would have to suffer. They would have to live under uh, oppressive regimes and oppressive authority. But it wasn't about this kingdom. His kingdom is not the visible one. He goes on to say how sudden his return is going to be, how unexpected, how caught off guard people will be, not to mention how unprepared they will be. In verse 26, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time of Noah, entered his boat, and the flood came and destroyed them all. And the, wor the world will be like it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building. Until the morning, Lot left Sodom. Then fire, burning sulfur, rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it's going to be business as usual, right up to the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Just like today. Just like going shopping after church to get groceries. Just like Going to bed tonight, thinking you're going to get up. Did I set my alarm? Am I going to snooze a little bit before I head off to work? Just like an ordinary day. Business as usual. So in the back of our mind, we all know Jesus could come back at any time, at any day, at any moment. We just don't seem to really want to plan for that eventuality. Right? Many people feel like they still have a lot of of a lot and lot and lots of time to prepare for that day, but they will not be found ready when the Lord shows up. 
They will not be chosen. Some will and some won't. And this is, this is the touchy part of this passage. He says on verse 31, on that day, a person out on the deck of a roof, don't go down to the house to pack. A person out in the field must not go home. Like, it's not going to be any time to run back and say, hey, did I ever tell you about Jesus? Hey, I, I left all this stuff undone. Uh, 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 there's no time. Time runs out. When Christ returns, I'm just even thinking, what would you run back to get? I mean, what do you want to bring to heaven with you? Anything we have rusts and decays and is destroyed eventually. In verse 32, it says, remember Lot's wife. He doesn't even go into detail because everybody knows the story. In Genesis 19, judgment was coming upon the Sodom and Gomorrah towns. Their evil had, had been so grievous before God that he says, you know what, you're done. Judgment's coming. And he told Lot and his wife, who were living in Sodom, you got to get out of town. Run as fast and as far as you can, or you're going to be consumed by what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sulfur rocks, fire, and brimstone were coming down to destroy the city. Don't look back. <laughs> Don't look back. And she did. I don't know why she looked back. Maybe it was curiosity. So she could hear the falling sulfur rocks. Maybe hear the screams from people who were dying. It would have been terrifying. And maybe she just wanted a little peek. But the consequences of her disobedience to God cost her her life. Maybe she looked back longing for the life she was leaving behind. Maybe she had a kind of a nice house. Maybe she had just planted her garden and it was just coming up nicely, wondering maybe if where God was taking her was worth the effort. Maybe we should stay behind. Maybe it would be okay. Maybe it's not as bad as God says it's going to be. Maybe she didn't think God's future was going to be better than her past. Maybe she didn't trust that God knew what lies ahead will far outshine what they were leaving behind. Lots of people want to live in both worlds. They want to live in the world in the past where they should have left and in the world in the future that God has planned and prepared for them. They want, to, they want to have the best of both worlds. They're not really all in or all out of either one. They're still clinging on to the past. They're still looking longingly at what they used to have or what they had to give up rather than clinging on to the one who's given them life, eternal life. Verse 33, he says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you let your life go, you'll save it. Do you figure you should try to get the most you can out of this life now, today, these years, instead of investing in God's kingdom? Okay. You want to invest in the trinkets and treasures and distractions of this world rather than investing in eternal life and everlasting things that cannot rust or decay? Maybe you feel that antsy if you don't order at least one more thing on Amazon this week. You can. It's your choice. You can invest in this world 
You can embrace all that this world has to offer and go down those roads and order it all and have it and accumulate it and, and do all of the wonderful things you want. But kind of like me on that road in Saskatchewan, there may be a day you find yourself all alone. Some Christians are consumed by what this world is up to, so much so that they've lost sight of what God is up to. They obsess about politics, about government, about international intrigues over which they have no say, no control, and no influence. When I read these passages and I peruse through the New Testament and I look at what Christ says, there's nowhere does he say that he came to overthrow Rome. He came to transform people's hearts, to redeem lost souls, to proclaim a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He wasn't obsessed about the world's kingdoms because his kingdom is different. The wise follower of Jesus, the more spiritually minded, the more invested in the kingdom of God, sees things differently. They don't live as though they have all the time in the world. They make the most of every opportunity. They know to only be concerned with today and not to worry so much about tomorrow because for a lot of people, tomorrow not, is not going to come. We have today. Are we making the most of it? That night, Jesus says in verse 34, two people will be asleep in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Where will this happen, Lord? The disciples asked Jesus, and he says, well, just as gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Jesus doesn't give a date or a year. If he did, everyone would be looking for that date, preparing for that date, rather than just getting busy doing what we're supposed to be doing. There are hints at what is coming. When leaves turn color and drop from the trees, you know winter's coming. Some people are watching for wars and rumors of wars and, and uh, earthquakes and droughts and natural disasters. All of these things have been happening for thousands of years, actually. There's been wars and rumors of wars since before, way before Jesus' time, during Jesus' time, and after Jesus' time. So you can think about Ukraine and Russia and, and, and Afghanistan and Syria and all these things going on. Oh, the end is near. Going, maybe. But these things have been happening for thousands of years. Let's do what we need to be doing right now so when Christ comes back, we're ready. Some people say, God gave me a dream. God spoke to me about his second coming. But pardon me if I remain skeptical. I think we need to reinterpret your dream. Because God isn't going to tell you ahead of his son. I know that. Maybe you're also looking for a Messiah to overthrow the government like the Jews. What are you looking for? What are you waiting for? What are you anticipating with God? Maybe you're looking for a Messiah to eradicate your enemies. Maybe you're looking for a Messiah to come and prove to everyone that Christianity was right all along and everyone else's religion is wrong. I mean, that'd be nice to say that it's been worth all the sacrifice or the effort. And we were right and you guys were wrong. But... That doesn't save people. It doesn't redeem the lost. It doesn't bring sinners before a gracious God to give them salvation. Jesus said his kingdom's already among us. 
So the question remains, are we fully submitted to him? Are you looking to love God more, to serve God more, to impact other lives more deeply, to allow God's spirit to shape and mold your life and and your character to look more like his son every day. His kingdom is already here. It's among us as we follow him and seek him and serve him and love him and worship him. His kingdom is being established and it has been for 2,000 years. Maybe you're still sitting on the fence, looking back. Not all in. Not totally committed to his kingdom and spreading of the gospel. Listen, don't, don't play games with your eternity. Don't waste time on what is unimportant or unworthy of investing the one life you have. If you are preaching any other gospel than Jesus, you're wasting your time and you're being a distraction to the church and to God's people. Sheep need to find the shepherd, not other sheep. They need the shepherd, Christ Jesus, to stand before him. I told you things are going to be a little bit different today. I'm going to ask uh, Kim to come up. It's my wife, and she was at the women's retreat a couple weeks back, and we wanted to just report back on what has happened uh, at the women's retreat. Not because we'd like to just tell you they had a retreat, but God moved. God moved among the women in our church. Lives were transformed. And I I want it to happen to the rest of the church. I want all of us to be seeking a deeper walk with God. And so I just asked him if she would share. We're going to have a time of prayer at the front. We're going to have a closing song. But just listen to what maybe God might be saying to you today. Thanks, Kim. So what happens at a woman's retreat and why does it matter? Well, God moves in mighty ways. It's not just a bunch of ladies getting together to chat and sing some songs. Um, We listened to a series of messages that was done at a women's conference in the U.S., and it was all about Psalm 23. And the first image we saw was a woman coming out, and she was actually holding a live lamb in her arms. And, And her whole message, she was holding this lamb in front of a stadium of thousands of women. And what struck us was how relaxed that lamb was in her arms, in the face of lights and people all looking at this little lamb. And and the message was that we have a shepherd that carries us and that to trust and believe in that shepherd is to be able to relax into his arms and know you are held, know you are carried into good places of abundance, know that surely goodness and mercy follow you and are with you all the days of your life, and um, to know that only in the arms of that shepherd are you safe and is your soul restored with good things. And we were challenged by a pastor in the States called David Platt about what happened at his church, and all he did was tell stories. It happened around the time of the Asbury Revival, if any of you know about all of that, where God's Spirit moved in a mighty way in a college campus, and David Platt challenged his church, and he said, we can go to Asbury, but we know that God's Spirit is here with us now. And what is God asking us to do now? And he asked this question. It's a simple question. We've heard it before, but he said, do you have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, or do you need to restart one because you lost the way somewhere? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if, if, if truth and reality and what is real matters to you, the only place you find it in Jesus 
If you, if you need to know what is the way through this life, the way of peace, the way of hope, the way where I can conquer my fears and my worries, the way of abundance, it is in the way of Jesus. And if you've lost the way somewhere, or if you're one of those people that never has found the way, maybe today's the day to make that decision. Because as our sermon told us, we need to live urgently, and we need to live with a focus and a clarity whether Jesus comes in 100 years or comes tomorrow, eternal things are on the line because our lives don't last for 100 years necessarily unless they're starting today. And so um, we're going to have the praise team come, and they're going to sing. And if you are, need an answer to that question, am I safe in the arms of Jesus? Am I able to relax into Jesus' arms? Do I know that I am following the way of Jesus and do I know in my heart that I know him personally and I am safe in his arms? And if you're not even sure the answer to that question, maybe today's the day to pray that prayer, to come forward, to talk to somebody. There's going to be people here to pray with you. Um, and as God moved in a mighty way when that question was asked at our women's retreat, we believe that God is also moving in other areas of our church as well. And that's why we wanted to share with you this morning.